Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, in 415 BC, the city of Athens sent a fleet of over 100 ships and 5,000 hoplites to attack the city of Syracuse in Sicily, an expedition that would result in catastrophe. The philosopher Plato, writing decades later, described a drinks party held perhaps a few months or even weeks before the expedition departed, given by the dramatist Agathon to celebrate his winning first prize in the Lanaia Festival. Among his famous guests was Socrates, the philosopher and gadfly, and coming uninvited to the feast later on in Plato's telling was Alcibiades, the chief mover and proponent of the Sicilian expedition and a one-time student of Socrates. Any Athenian who read Plato would know that, and they would also know that Alcibiades had ultimately been exiled from Athens not once but twice, and that Socrates had been executed by the citizens of the city for having corrupted the young, young men like Alcibiades and others. With me to discuss what Alcibiades learned from Socrates and the importance of political ambition is Ariel Helfer. He is assistant professor of political science at Wayne State University and author of Socrates and Alcibiades, Plato's Drama of Political Philosophy and Ambition, published in 2017 by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Ariel Helfer, welcome to Historically Thinking. Well, thank you. So this is a little bit outside our normal bailiwick, but um, this is my acknowledgement that it's an election year. It's, <laughs> it's as close to that as I'm going to get is to talk about political ambition in Plato. So um, everyone's been warned. Uh, it's um, particularly a posit that we're talking about this. I'm recording this. We're recording this just after the end of two weeks of back-to-back, wall-to-wall um, political conventions in the United States. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's got me thinking about your book, <laughs> I don't know if you did, uh, and about the nature of American political ambition. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I've told people I'm recording this conversation with you, they sort of, their eyes get a little wider. Mm-hmm. And they and they, then they then the first question they ask is the one I'll ask you now. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is political ambition and why is it important to think about? Well, uh, you know, political ambition, I think, the more one thinks about it, the more one realizes that it's uh, it's a combination of powerful desires for a, a unique collection of uh, of goals and ends that are, I think, what really makes it distinctive is the way that those ends are simultaneously selfish and selfless. You know, there's the desire for power. Um, um, for re- for recognition, uh, for honor, um, but at the same time, there's the desire to be a benefactor to one's fellow citizens, um, and uh, to be honored for doing genuinely honorable things. Uh, you know, to make one's one's uh, community a better place, and uh, that's a powerful mixture. And I think that in various ways, you know, those are all things we all want. Really powerful political ambition can kind of, in some cases, uh, emphasize the, 
the, the more selfish and even darker strain of those desires, and in some cases, the more selfless ones. And so it has many forms, but um, in some way, you know, those desires are in all of us. So it, 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 uh, it, it can have huge impact uh, over, you know, the fate of a political community. And it also uh, speaks to the longings and desires that have great impact on our individual lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's um, <clears throat> very nicely put. And I, I've been, um, this summer I read Robert Cairo, the mm-hmm. the biographer of uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson. Um, mm-hmm. I read his book on writing first. I never read any of his books on LBJ. And it's a great book on writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, would like to have him on the podcast. That's not going to happen. <laughs> um, and it got me start. I started to read uh, his books on LBJ, which are a meditation or a history of the use of political power in mid-century mm-hmm. United States. Mm-hmm. And I, I really would lo- love to read an Ariel Helfer commentary on LBJ uh, and Alcibiades' um, political ambition. Because okay, right just. You got I me. Mean, please do. I, I, that's from the editorial <laughs> desk because there, there is what you just described. That, yeah. that. Um, well, I mean, in LBJ, it's like a, it's like a nest of snakes. I mean, of uh, writhing together the yeah. uh, altruism and also just. I mean, I had to put the books down. Well, whatever you do with a Kindle, um, yeah. because I, I, I don't enjoy spending time around with LBJ as a person, uh, <laughs> uh, because he had this desire to dominate others. Yeah. At the same time. Somewhere yeah. in that really yeah. twisted psyche, I think yeah. I can say, was yeah. a desire to do good. Absolutely. And what I guess what Adam Smith would say to be lovely mm-hmm. um, and to be loved, yeah. <laughs> which is sometimes kind of a sick instinct, but um, but uh, mm-hmm. not to be lovely, I don't think. Um, and uh, it's it's really complex. And Alcibiades and LPJ, there's, there's certain similarities. Uh, however, there's some yeah. dissimilarities. For sure. Um, the political system in Athens is wildly different from, well, let's just say from that of the United States or yeah. modern Britain or Japan yeah. or anywhere where, where I have listeners to this podcast. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I was reading a blog of a, a philosopher at the University of Colorado who was saying, why do we even have historical <laughs> philosophers? They shouldn't be allowed in philosophy <laughs> departments. Um, t- t- talking about this stuff is ridiculous. What does Plato have to say to us? Nothing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I tend to disagree. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, why, why read Plato for political ambition? Uh, well, um, <laughs> I mean, boy, there's a there's there's a, there's a lot there. My 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 full response to the question, you know, or to the challenge: the history of philosophy doesn't belong in a philosophy department. Might be. Might, might might have more to it, I guess, than the, the narrower question, why read him for political ambition? But I, mm-hmm. um, I guess I would say that in the case of political ambition, um, I, I think that in the Greek city-state, maybe in Athens in particular, um, when uh, civic, you know, bef- before it, it the context was one in which this emphasis on the private sphere that we have today um, had not come into existence in the way it, 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 not, it didn't, didn't exist. Uh, and, and uh, you know, life was public life to a much greater extent. And, um, and, and one's identity, if one was a citizen, um, and, you know, a full active, participating, voting citizen, a male citizen, 
um, one's identity was as a citizen. Uh, and, and so this complex set of desires I was referring to um, was much more in the forefront of, uh, of, 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 the, of the typical um, psyche of, of, of a human being uh, living in the community, their membership in that community, their obligation to that community, the possibility of, of contributing to the, the good of that community was really a, a much more primary part of their identity and what they sought out of life. And so if I'm right in saying that despite our movement uh, into a, a context and a culture or our, our, our location in a context and culture where we're driven to and asked to think much more about our private interest as something that kind of has nothing to do with public life, has not in the end affected the fact or has not changed the fundamental fact that all those desires are still there. We still do want to be loved and honored. We still do want power. We still do want to benefit our community. We, those things do form an important part of, of, uh, of our strivings and longings and what it is that we're seeking. Then the philosopher who writes from the context of ancient Athens, I think, writes with more clarity from the outset about what it is that's important to us. And, and we, by becoming so disconnected, I think, from our identity as citizens and members of communities, um, you know, have a harder time finding our way to a recognition of this cluster of desires as, as, uh, as, as a key phenomenon to explore. Mm -hmm. um, we need to give a little historical background. Um, mm. Athens is a radical democracy, even by our standards. Um, Alcibiades, is an elected president. Uh, he's not Speaker of the Assembly. Um, how does one exert political power in mm. the Athenian Assembly, which consists of all free men? That's like ten thousand men. That's yeah. a, it's a it's a huge number of people. Yeah. Some people are chosen for office by lottery. <laughs> Other yeah. people are elected, but for these are very temporary offices of what, like a year, even yeah. six months. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so how do people exercise? How does someone like Pericles, Alcibiades' mm -hmm. uh, relative, um, how does Alcibiades, how do they exert political power? Yeah, uh, so 10,000, I mean, that doesn't sound like a large number, but of course what you mean is uh, if 10,000 men in the assembly uh, voted, but that is the, leg the primary uh, uh, legislative and executive body. Like once a week, once a month. Yeah. Some, uh, along those lines, quite regularly to make, yeah. you know, all the major decisions. It's not, it's not every day. The, the, um, there, there's a council that is selected by lottery much more regularly. I think once a month and they meet daily That's a few hundred people, but they meet daily to, um, you know, to, 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 to handle daily administrative matters, but, but the assembly meets very regularly. And, um, yeah. And so, uh, they meet now that's, 10,000 or so uh, people meeting to vote on all kinds of uh, legislative and executive decisions. Um, the votes are put by speakers who, um, you know, attempt to argue persuasively for one course of an action or another. And so the assembly, uh, you know, watches debates, um, you know, uh, run according to certain constitutional procedures and so on, but they, they, they watch debates. And so, um, various men 
rise to prominence in the city as persuasive speakers, as as the speakers in the assembly who attempt to kind of guide the assembly's vote uh, toward one course of action or another. And among the most important such persuasive speakers were the and were the ten men at any given time who were holding the one-year elected position of general. Um, so uh, this was a, an, ext- an extremely uh, powerful and prestigious elected position, uh, the Strategos in Greek, and uh, and Alcibiades was one of both, and Pericles had been too. And, and could you be elected to consecutive uh, yeah. uh, offices? Yes, okay. you could. I, there were no term limits, uh, as far as I know. The, the, the one limit that you might run up against was uh, the institution of ostracism, where yes. uh, if if, uh, if one man became uh, you know too powerful, one might say, and began to kind of concern the uh, democratic uh, public on account of their popularity and and, and power. Uh, it could be put to a vote whether they should be cast out of the city for a pretty good uh, length of time. I think maybe ten years or something like that. Um, but you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't an automatic mechanism. But it's something that happened many times. It, it happened, in fact, to every sort of prominent leader of Athens, with the exception, I think, of Pericles. Uh, he Pericles died, died, of, died of the plague, but but it was you know there it was yeah he he, he had his uh, detractors and people who wanted him out too yeah. I mean, even Themistocles, who arguably yeah. saved not just Athens, but all of Greece at the Battle of Salamis, I mean, he gets ostracized, and that's yeah. just, which is kind of incredible. There's, there's, um, a great, there's a great story in Plutarch. There's, a, there's a, um, a, 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 um, another kind of on the left, perhaps on the level of Themistocles, but maybe not quite that much. Aristides. But, uh, Aristides, yeah. Yeah. Aristides yeah. known as Aristides the Just, if I'm remembering right. Yep, and, that's right, uh, that's right. And, and, uh, and the story <laughs> told in Plutarch is that... Uh, uh, one one illiterate citizen at the ostracism vote asks the man next to him to uh, cast his vote for ostracizing Aristides. He doesn't know that he's asking Aristides himself to do it. And Aristides <laughs> asks him, you know, if you don't mind me saying, what is it that you – and he says, I'm tired of this guy always, you know, being called the just. You know, like <laughs> it makes me feel bad. He says, "Yeah, it makes me feel bad." Yeah, and uh, and, Ar- and Aristides, being Aristides the Just, dutifully writes down his own name on on the tablet and submits it, and he's ostracized. And we found, and the archaeologists have found a pre-made uh, uh, ostracai, those little uh, tile scratch yes. tile. Yeah. Uh, so various facts. I think the pre-made with Themistocles' name on it. Uh, uh-huh. So they, these these would be passed out, you know, uh-huh. to the Ill- illiterate members of the assembly by those right. who wanted to get rid of someone. Mm-hmm. So there's ostracism. Um, so this yeah. is a radical democracy. You yeah. and this explains sort of one of the whole the subtexts of the uh, the Platonic dialogues: uh, the need to become powerful in the city through public speaking, mm-hmm. um, and the rhetoric by the, the sophists: uh, how mm-hmm. to gain power. They mm-hmm. see this also. In, We'll talk about um, in Aristophanes' The Clouds. Uh, we talked about that with Xena Hits like a, a couple weeks ago, mm. um, uh, in part. Uh, and the way that one becomes uh, can become wealthy and powerful through mm-hmm. education. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about Plato very briefly. And could you explain mm-hmm. the sort of um, it's like a set of nesting dolls? Um, the uh, mm-hmm. the dialogues as with historical figures, which are written as uh, semi-fictional drama, although we're not mm-hmm. sure of to what level of semi-fictional. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, Plato, perhaps 
the most influential philosopher in all of Western history, um, certainly a contender for that title, uh, wrote in um, <laughs> more or less invented. It's, it said he, he uh, you know, there were some influences there, but I think for all intents and purposes, invented a literary form for his philosophic work that he stuck to. Um, the philosophic dialogue in which uh, Plato himself doesn't speak. It's not a treatise. Um, Plato himself is not uh, is, is not a character in the dialogue. And but on the other hand, they're not quite plays. There's not enough action for them to be plays. <laughs> Try to put it on like a play, you would bore the audience. Um, so oh, there, well, maybe not maybe not an audience of grad students in philosophy. But that no, may, maybe maybe not. But you know, Every, they, everyone else would pass out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, and grad students are sleepy too, you know. Um, but uh, uh, you know, so so their dialogues they take they, they they look like plays, but they in 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 the case of the Platonic dialogues, they generally speaking have Socrates as their main character, Socrates, who was a real historical figure and Plato's teacher, um, performing what appears to have been his characteristic philosophic activity, which was discussions, uh, discussions about a great many things, but very often about uh, virtue, um, the just, uh, justice, courage, moderation, and wisdom, the four cardinal platonic virtues. Um, and the question, what are they? What is justice? What is courage? Uh, and then much more often than not, refuting his interlocutors, the people with whom he's speaking. Um, so, at, you know, when you approach the, the work of Plato, one of the very first questions is, why on earth did he write this way? Why did he think that this was the best way to, uh, to convey his philosophic teaching? Uh, it certainly requires a level of interpretation that, um, you know, Kant or Hegel does not uh, as difficult as they may be to understand, it's not because we're left wondering, like after we read a, a, a play by Shakespeare, what was the author's, you know, thought? Like, how do we get the author's thought out of the words and ideas and discussions of these characters created by the author? It, it creates a great, if I if I may, it creates a great yeah. deal of, of trouble. The debates around what Plato meant and was doing have, have never seen. Yeah. Until yeah. I actually taught the Republic, I huh. believe Karl, Karl Popper, uh, that Plato was yeah. a fascist. Yeah. <laughs> and and then you read the Republic and you think, Sir Karl, I mean, give yeah. me a break. I mean, yeah. this it's a lot harder to figure these things out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's uh, obviously, he's trying things on mm -hmm. uh, and at, at, at least. And um, he at pro is often, I don't want to go full Strauss in here, but he's often dis very disguise disguising what his real opinion is. Yeah, I think, I think so. Yeah, sure. And, um, you know, I think that if I, can, if I can offer one interpretation or one suggestion as to, you know, the purpose of the dialogue form, um, Plato indicates in his dialogue the Phaedrus through his character of Socrates, of course, um, a difficulty with writing as such, or certainly writing for a philosopher, and that is, um, or writing as a teacher, let's say. That is that once you write um, and you leave your, your written works behind for others to read or, or distribute them for others to read, you cease to be present as, as a living, active teacher to, uh, to discuss with your students. 
um, if they have a question or if they misunderstand something or take something the wrong way, you're not there to correct them or answer their question. And so, the, you know, th there, is this, there is this difficulty with writing. And uh, Socrates himself, Plato's teacher, never wrote a word. And Plato seems to indicate through the Phaedrus that maybe this was why, uh, that Socrates as a teacher thought, if I'm going to teach, I have to teach, um, you know, to the person living there, sharing the conversation, maybe sharing many conversations with them. Plato seems to have found uh, a, a, an amazingly elegant solution to this, which was not to teach us directly through his writing, not to write down simply what he thought, which is open to misinterpretation or misuse, but rather to let us witness Socrates having his conversation with others and imagine ourselves as kind of flies on the wall and see, I see, this is what Socrates said to this person in this circumstance. And, and this is what he said to that one and that. And we always have to think about this is Socrates speaking to this particular person. And so why does he say it to that person? Sometimes Socrates says two different things to two different people in two different mm -hmm. dialogues. And we have to recognize the context must have something to do with that. So uh, this is Plato's way, I think, of circumventing the problem to the greatest degree he can. I'm not going to tell you straightforwardly what it is that I think, but I will let you watch Socrates doing his thing. And maybe that's the next best thing to have in a conversation with Socrates. And, and this has led, I, I've read some uh, commentators say, well, this, this just shows you that Socrates is some kind of philosophical nihilist. Um, I don't see how you can read Socrates uh, three or four dialogues and, and come to that conclusion. But no. I do think, I do think that um, Plato does want you to make up your own damn mind. Yeah, that is not philosophical nihilism. No, no, it's not the same thing. And, and uh, you know, I think what it, what, what, what it indicates is Plato's appreciation for the fact that uh, a, philosoph a genuine philosophical education is not uh, being filled up with knowledge by someone. You know, it's not like learning calculus. It's, uh, it's something that you really have to work through the issues and the questions for yourself, in part because this particularly the moral and philosophic questions, the moral and, and political questions that, that uh, occupy so much of Plato's work um, are ones which are so thorny because we have so many hopes and desires bound up with them that, um, you know, we really have to, you really do need, if, if, you, if you don't have someone there to discuss them with, a teacher to, to, to really have conversations with, you know, you are very liable to, to, uh, to have those hopes and desires and fears um, influence your your thinking and your interpretation and and, uh, and so on. So they, you really need to work through those questions uh, carefully on your own. You can't just be told the answer by somebody. Now, as these philosophical dialogues uh, dialogues are, are are written and then circulated amongst mm -hmm. uh, his uh, confreres, um, mm -hmm. they're reading it as I indicated in the introduction, also with the knowledge that these are actual people that they might sure. have known. Absolutely. or known of for sure and they know how the play ends as it were mm -hmm. and they i I've, I've often wondered how this is because i'm a historian not a philosopher mm -hmm. how they're thinking how they're interpreting then the history of their city uh they know what alcibiades will do they'll know that he'll mm -hmm. re, he'll flee uh, exile or maybe even execution after the disaster uh, in sicily mm -hmm. uh they know that he'll come to, to he'll go to, over to sparta <clears throat> excuse me and they know that he'll uh come back to Athens. Well, not literally, but he'll come back to the Athenian cause and then, then flee again or be exiled a second time. Mm -hmm. They know that Socrates will be executed. Mm -hmm. um, so they're reading these philosophical dialogues with knowledge of these are sort of, uh, these are about real people uh, who've done real things and have 
things happen to them, which is very interesting. Yes, for sure. And, and it does, it does put an extra, um, level of difficulty on the, on the modern reader, because you really have to do what you can to, to, uh, um, make sure you don't miss any of that, you know, uh, for just to take an example in the dialogue, the first Alcibiades, the opening passage has Socrates, um, saying to Alcibiades, I know what it is that you are, are, are desiring and longing for in your heart. And he goes on to describe a scenario in which Alcibiades comes to be without saying it in so many words, uh, universal tyrant over all humankind. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, one can read this with great interest and it's fascinating. And, but I think we're, we're, we're reading it with a, uh, something missing if we're not struck just right in the face at the outset that Plato has chosen to present the very first words that Socrates ever speaks to Alcibiades <laughs> as being this kind of inflammation of his tyrannical ambition when it was well known that Alcibiades was this extremely notorious figure in Athens and uh, whose, whose, you know, desire for uh, uh, power led the whole course of Athenian history awry. And that Socrates was executed in very large part for the influence he had over Alcibiades in particular. For this to be what Plato says, yeah, this is what their relationship, this is how their relationship started. I think an Athenian would have seen that right away. On the, they would have said this is a, this is a kind of bombshell opening. Um, and and uh, so we do have to, I think, keep that in mind when we read that that, that context is there, and that um, uh, speaking about these historic historical, you know, it's good when a when a, a, a good a good translation, a good good edition will give you lots of footnotes to help you with that because I think it really is important. Yeah, and the only thing I can compare it to is reading Dante without understanding that all of Florence is in hell, <laughs> um, and then having to wade through lengthy notes explaining who each person that yes. he encounters is. Yeah. But uh, of course, the reader in 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 14th century Italy would have an immediate access and and yeah. sort of and marveling at the audacity. Of yes. the poet, in the same yes. way that they must have had the, the felt the yes. same way about when they read Plato. Let's mm -hmm. talk about these uh, the first uh, uh, Alcibiades and second Alcibiades. Mm -hmm. um, I, I see that you're also working on an edition of Plato's letters. Mm -hmm. uh, interestingly, the letters in first and second Alcibiades, have, uh, their, their authorship has been questioned. We yes. don't have too much time to talk about this. This is rather like uh, arguments over the canon of the Bible. Sure. Um, it gets these are something that, that probably people spend their entire life uh, arguing about and die with burning with anger. Yep. Um, so, uh, could you briefly uh, defend yourself? Why have you chose? Why did you use first and second Alcibiades uh, when everyone knows that Plato didn't actually write those? <laughs> uh, well, um, briefly, uh, for most, I mean, Plato has never ceased to be read. Uh, since, his, since his works were, were written, and for the better part of that history, um, it was, it, as far as we can tell, um, you know, starting at least a, a few hundred years later when we have our first kind of uh, uh, evidence of, 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 of what people thought the Platonic corpus looked like, uh, the um, conventional wisdom, the accepted uh, uh, 
knowledge about this was that Plato had written 35 dialogues and 13 letters, and uh, that was the Platonic Corpus. Um, they had been arranged into groups of three or four. Um, the precisely the uh, scholarly trend towards uh, greater scrutiny in examining the provenance of biblical texts led into uh, similar exercises when it came to um, classical uh, Greek texts, for example. And uh, so in the 19th century, the German classicists, starting more or less with uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher, Schleiermacher, who, who, who did do this higher criticism with respect to the Bible, but also very extensively with respect to Plato, um, they, the, the German classicists were uh, picking apart the Platonic corpus, looking at it anew, saying, now wait a second, just because some people a couple thousand years ago said that this is the 35, how did they know? You know were they sure? Maybe they were mistaken. It, it was known, after all, that some uh, very early, quite early on, some dialogues were going around under Plato's name that were more or less universally recognized as spurious. And so if that had always been going on, how are we so sure about the 35 that had this purportedly kind of, you know, on mm. uh, uh, stamp of stamp of approval, who, whose stamp of approval was it? How much was it worth? And um, and so they began to tear it apart. Some people said the Republic's not really by Plato. Some people said the Republic is the only thing that's really by Plato. The 19th century was quite uh, was was quite chaotic, and with, as far as these debates went, the Platonic Corpus was in great flux. The 20th century saw that flux settle down some, although there are still some areas of, of, uh, of more debate. But um, I I happen to be one who thinks that the whole exercise was a bit misguided. That um, uh, you know, and especially for this reason, that in the end, you can't, there are no dialogues where, you know, Plato speaks about, you know, Augustus or something like that, something, a genuine anachronism where you realize, well, you can't, you know, he, look, he wrote, he wrote the date, you know, 380 BC on it. If he wrote BC, he must have, can't have been written. <laughs> There's nothing like that. There's nothing like that where it's, it's just an open and shut case. It could not have been written by Plato. In the end, you ha you wind up having to make the make the decisions about what is and isn't genuine on the basis of your interpretation of Plato. It winds mm -hmm. up ha it winds up really having to be: Could Plato have written this? The content of it? Would he have written this? And as we were just saying, that's a very difficult question to ask. And so some will say, no, no, he couldn't have written the Second Alcibiades because he didn't think this. But I think that really depends on, first of all, are you sure, are you right about what he thought? And second of all, are you right about what the second Alcibiades is indicating that he thinks? Uh, mm -hmm. Both are, both are difficult. And I, so I come down on the, on, on the side of thinking um, there's actually more coherence to the 35, the original 35, aside from the ancient attestations of authenticity for those 35 dialogues being worth more than I think they're generally given credit for. That's, that's an old attestation from a time that was much closer to Plato, where the manuscript tradition was was in was in better shape. Aside from that, uh, which I think is worth something, I think there's also more coherence to the traditional, if you want to call it that, Thrasylian, as it's often called, after the Thrasylus who, who who arranged the dialogues into groups of four tetralogy. 
there's, there's more coherence to that 35 dialogue canon that's generally realized, but it is a matter of interpretation. The matter will never be settled. Uh, but because the first and second Alcibiades kind of fell upon harder times, especially the second, which is still quite widely viewed as, as spurious, um, they haven't been looked at as much. And if I'm right in saying the 35 dialogue corpus is, is authentic, then that means that Plato wrote two dialogues with Alcibiades, not only as the main character, but as the uh, eponymous, the titular character. Um, but also, uh, you know, the symposium where Alcibiades is a, is a major character. And that that means Plato, as, a, as, a well, as well as the Protagoras, where he shows up in a significant capacity, although not as, not as significant as those other three I mentioned, it means that Plato really chose to present this critical character in the life of Socrates in a narrative arc spanning many dialogues, many years, and that he was probably wanting the reader to take the development of this character into consideration. What did, after, if, 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 the, if the charge against Socrates is corrupting the youth um, and Alcibiades is exhibit A, well, here's Plato's presentation of the development of Alcibiades under the influence of Socratic education over the course of many years. What does, what, what's Plato's answer to the charge against Socrates? And, and what, what does he think really went on? And, and what does he think political ambition looks like when scrutinized by Socratic philosophy for the politically ambitious person himself to see, I think those are questions that uh, it hasn't really been recognized so much. Plato was asking his readers to think about. Well, let's get to the, the let's get to first Alcibiades. Mm -hmm. um, so as we've said, it's um, very hard to say this is Plato's argument. Mm -hmm. um, so, but I think we can talk about vectors or tendencies mm -hmm. of an argument. He's going towards something. So in First Alcibiades, mm -hmm. it's where Socrates and Alcibiades uh, supposedly meet for the first time. Mm -hmm. uh, Alcibiades is a ward. He's being uh, in the household mm -hmm. of Pericles, mm -hmm. which is significant for Athenian history. And mm -hmm. uh, Socrates is this uh, curious, um, well, I mean, he was a hoplite, so he had actually had more money than we think. But yeah. he chooses he chooses to live like a beggar, mm -hmm. um, and um, and he wanders around asking people questions. And they meet. What's the what's the direction? What's Plato doing with that dialogue? <laughs> uh, well, um, for one thing, he's showing a relatively young Socrates relative to the the rest of the dialogues in the corpus. In fact, this is one of the earliest pictures we have of Socrates in the whole Platonic corpus. Uh, and you could say the earliest picture of him that we have, the earliest picture we have of him performing his characteristic activity, finding a, in one version of that activity, a promising Athenian, ambitious Athenian youth, and then questioning them about their ambition. Uh, quest questioning Alcibiades about what it is that he um, is, is hoping for, at kind of taking apart his ambition and his desires, his longings and hopes, and asking him to think about their coherence. You know, what is the end goal of this? What is it that you really want? And it seems that one thing that Socrates was hoping for was that someone like Alcibiades, who had such a powerful desire to achieve the greatest good for himself and, and, uh, um, and for his city, um, would not be able to see a Socratic critique of that ambition without saying, no, this I have to figure out. I can't leave this. Once I've seen this, I can't unsee it. 
I, 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 I need to follow Socrates and examine myself and figure out what it is that really makes sense for me to want. What is the good for a human being? Um, and uh, so there's the, there's, there's the question, well, why would that be so? What is there to critique in the ambition of someone like Alcibiades? And also, why is Socrates doing this? Because, as I say, you look at the opening page, especially if you know the historical context, and you realize Socrates is playing with dynamite here. I mean, this is a very dangerous thing to be doing in the end. Um, so those questions loom over the whole thing. But I think you could say that, you know, we feel the ebb and flow of, 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 uh, of this conversation most keenly when we recognize that's the tension. It's Alcibiades' desire, his native desire for, for political honor and political greatness. Uh, pulling him towards politics and Socrates with this critical eye asking him to think about it and we're and trying to see if he can be swayed to to channel his passion and desire into philosophic self-examination with the idea well it doesn't make sense for me to continue to pursue this thing so long as I can see that really I don't understand it and I don't understand myself hmm. um how does that end up? How does where where does Alcibiades has Alcibiades moved in the course of the dialogue? Yes, for sure. Uh, I mean, by the end of the dialogue, he says, um, "Socrates, uh, I am. Uh, you've been following me around for quite a while now, but our roles are about to change. I'm going to be following you around from here on out, and I'm going to be thinking about justice, just like you told me to." And um, so, yes, there's a, there's a turn, well, the, it, both because we know how the story ends, as you put it, uh, and because of the way that Plato presents things in the sequel, we recognize that it doesn't, it doesn't stick. Um, and so as much as Socrates was able to have this powerful influence over Alcibiades, and we can see, you know, that it, it, really, it really did have an effect on him, Alcibiades does not become a philosopher, does not pursue a life of Socratic philosophy. And even in the symposium, Plato presents Alcibiades as saying, you know, at a certain point, it felt like Socrates was a siren and I have to block my ears and run away um, so as not to uh, suffer the fate of growing old sitting at his feet. Um, yeah. you know, and so he, let, runs, let me, he runs back let, to the, the people in the end. Yeah. Let, let me read the last few lines of, of, of first Alcibiades. By all means. Uh, it's the Joet translation, so it's clunky Victorian English, but you know, there it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Alcibiades uh, says... Um, uh, I agree, and further I say that our relations are likely to be reversed. From this day forward, I must and will follow you as you have followed me. I will be the disciple, and you shall be my master. Oh, that is rare. My love breeds another love. And so, like the stork, I shall be cherished by the bird whom I have hatched. Alcibiades says, strange, but true. And henceforward, I shall begin to think about justice. And then Socrates closes, and I hope that you will persist. Although I have fears, not because I doubt you, but I see the power of the state, which may be too much for both of us. I think it's the power of the polis is what he's really saying. I think the state, state is too 19th century. Um, yes, which too much for, the, the power of the polis. What does he mean by fearing the power of the polis? Because that, of course, takes us all the way to the very last uh, dialogue with Socrates. Uh, well, yes. I mean, it takes us in two, in two directions. Uh, and, and one, of course, is is um, is is the fact that uh, Socrates, as a philosopher, 
as someone who necessarily questioned um, uh, what uh, his culture, his city uh, insists that one must not question, especially Greek religion, um, in the end cannot escape uh, or does not escape uh, you know, the, the uh, anger and scrutiny of the city who bring him up on capital charges and, and, and execute him for impiety and for corrupting the youth, which I think means in large part, you know, infecting them with his philosophic impiety. But it also means, and more to the point of political ambition, yeah. that Alcibiades himself uh, is, if he is going to do what he feels so inspired to do at, the, at this moment at the end of the dialogue, which is to follow Socrates, to think about justice, to kind of pursue these philosophic questions. It's going to mean that he's going to have to resist the powerful pull of the city with the honor, the adulation that it can bestow. I mean, we learn from the very beginning of the dialogue that Alcibiades is already used to uh, receiving this praise for his beauty, for his promise, for his character, um, and and that the, the city is lavishing this attention on him, effectively telling him, you're going to be the next Pericles. And um, that is extremely powerful in Alcibiades, and Socrates sees that it's him against the city in a way, vying for Alcibiades' affection, uh, that uh, Socrates has to continue to appear to Alcibiades to hold out something of such great worth and such great beauty that it rivals the, uh, the, 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 the good that Alcibiades sees or hopes for from the city itself that he could receive in uh, exchange for his service to them. So, uh, yeah. I, I think um, here we should, uh, I, I like Paul Cartledge has a gloss on Polis, um, he translates it, uh, he admits clunkily, but I think accurately, as sort of citizenry city. I don't say I'm from Athens. I say I'm an Athenian or a Theban or a Spartan. Mm -hmm. um, so when we say the city, it's very passive. But of course, what he's mm -hmm. talking about, what Socrates is talking about, is the 10,000 free men who gather there in the assembly. Um, those are the, that's the, there's a, that's the power. It's the power of adulation yeah. and of yeah. love. Uh, yeah. That's the thrill of giving a good speech and hearing them roar and, you know, and resounding off the Acropolis. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. it, it's, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. you know, and it's it, the, the intoxicating of seeing things get done because you gave it a, a powerful speech. And, and, the, and the, the, the metaphor of intoxication from that, that's part of the dialogue, it's explicit in the dialogue. And it, it, Socrates says quite clearly, you know, this is the day I need to inoculate you against this. Um, because that's going to be, you know, what, what, what you're, that's going to be what you're struggling against here. It's going to be so tempting to go back to that. And, you know, it's, there's, there's, there's a couple of things because it's, it's, it is, it's both, you know, it's the citizenry. It's the people who are there now making up the city. And it's also the city in its eternal glory. The city yeah. is bigger than us in two ways. We're a part of it as a member of the community, but it's also something that extends before us and after us in time. And yeah. and uh, and so Alcibiades is seeking eternal glory, and 
Yep. Um, it's, and, it's, it's a place. And you see that in the, yeah. in the idea, the very, the ancient myths of Thebes that they, that the yeah. Thebans began sprung up from the ground, but that that's in the Athenian myths too, that the, sure. the king is, is what the, the seaman of it, he springs up from the ground of the, the sort of the unnatural uh, rape really of Neptune uh, of Athena. Um, and there's a child is born from the earth. Um, there's always something from the earth, from place and eternity are, 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 are linked together. Autophony, yeah. Uh, it's, um, you know, and I think there's, there's, there's indicate these, those, these, these myths are fascinating and they, 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 they carry a lot in them and they, they indicate both somehow um, the ugliness of political origins, yep. but, at, but at the same time, uh, you know, the uh, make, make, make the claim that no, but we as a people have a kind of just claim to this and um so it's a com complex but plato himself recognized that complexity i think as you can see for example in the republic and and uh, and so he, he understands the pull of that on alcibiades well let's go to the second alcibiades um mm. there's a later subtitle given into it uh on prayer mm. uh why because yeah. it, it, uh, what's 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 all this about then well, uh, yeah, good question, and that that is a really that is a really tough question, I think, when it comes to the second Alcibiades. I mean, the simple answer is that the arc, the narrative arc of this dialogue, is that Socrates intercepts Alcibiades on his way to pray, uh, um, and it's never said explicitly what he's going to pray for, but Alcibiades does agree that if the god to whom he was going to pray would. Uh, would kind of spontaneously grant him tyranny over the Athenians, that that would obviate his need for prayer. So whatever he was going to pray for was in that direction, I suppose. <laughs> and, and so um, now in the end, Socrates does divert him from praying. I mean, there's an interesting point there that Socrates creates this image of a god intercepting Alcibiades on, on his way to pray, obviating his need for prayer. And in the end, it's Socrates who intercepts Alcibiades on his way to prayer and obviates his need for prayer. Uh, but whether he, he does so in as, as decisive a way is a question. But then, but then, you know, what comes in is, and so there, there is some discussion in the dialogue about, um, you know, what one ought to pray for. Uh, as Socrates, again, seizing Alcibiades at a moment in which his desires are at a kind of uh, fever pitch and asking him, now, what's that about? What is it that you pray for? What is it that you're seeking? And I think that the, the relation of this, that question to the question about of, of political ambition is, is again, um, when you really think about what it is that you are longing for that you need, can you flesh it out? What, what is it? What is it that you actually, what would really satisfy you? Um, and so, I, I mean, that's the intersection. The dialogue is complex, um, but I think, you know, on, for, for Socrates, um, it's significant to see that in the, as a result of their interaction of Socrates pressing Alcibiades to think about what his political ambition really is, is driving at, it has come to a point where Alcibiades no longer feels totally self-sufficient as he did at the be explicitly, it was made explicit at the beginning of the first Alcibiades. He needs no one for anything. Hmm. But now he needs the gods. 
Now Alcibiades seems to think, and I argue as a result of his Socratic education thinks, no, now I need something here. I can't, there's, there's an element of this that's beyond my control. I need the gods for this. And, and uh, I think Socrates is keen to figure out what is that exactly? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else to tease out or mention that you, before we move on to the, the third and sort of the big one? Yeah, a million things, but why don't we? <laughs> okay. So it's the symposium, which uh, talk about a complex structure. It's, yeah. uh, and I think it's, by the way, I, I, I don't, I, now I can't, I have to look at my notes. I don't know if you mentioned this, but it strikes me as highly significant that the person who's ultimately getting the information is Glaucon. Oh, yeah. Um, because Glaucon is sort of the Alcibiades of his next generation in some ways. Um, in, in some ways, I mean, Al- in some ways, he never, in some he, ways. Never go, he never goes on to anything like the political career that Alcibiades had. He is, no. on the other hand, Plato's brother, and yeah. uh, and he's and he's the main interlocutor or the co-main interlocutor of Plato's most famous dialogue, uh, the Republic. And so, yeah. um, and the fact he, that he reappears here is significant. He he is a young man, however, with political ambitions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's of, of, good, of, he, good, of a good family and a uh, good yeah. family. He's got thumos. I mean, he's he's uh, he's got spirit. Yeah. Um, he's spirited throughout the the, uh, the republic. I mean, it's all, it's often said the way he tackles he and Adamantus, they tackle Socrates. So it's it, very interesting that Plato chooses his brother, who exemplifies a certain type of political ambition. Who Socrates will spend the entire time in the republic trying to convince to be a philosopher. Mm. Um, or to direct himself or, towards that. Yeah, yeah or at yeah. least to to uh, to to uh, to embrace philosophy or philosophers yeah, yeah, yeah. and and uh, and their title to rule, which is really the kind of uh, yep. tough one. Yeah. So, um, but he hears about it from someone who heard about it from someone else. Um, it's very interesting that Plato chooses to do that. Why? Do, why do you think he does that? Well, uh, in, in, in part, I think um, <clears throat> there is an indication in all of that that um, the relationship between Socrates and Alcibiades, especially towards the end of Socrates' own life, as, as uh, things are really heating up around him, uh, and you know, the, 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 the atmosphere is becoming the one in which he is to be charged <clears throat> with these crimes, capital crimes. Um, it, that that the relationship between him and Alcibiades is becoming uh, a, a a hot topic. What did mm-hmm. you know? We we know about this party. They talked. Socrates gave a speech. Alcibiades gave a speech about Socrates. What happened? Who knows the story? Who was there? Can someone tell? Give us the details. Um, and uh, <clears throat> so. That's that's part of it, and then there's also the you know Plato may be saying something about you know narrative, how these stories get told, how the kind of myth or the story of um, Socrates and Alcibiades kind of enters the public consciousness and becomes the kind of story that they understand it to have been. I mean, it's a it is a very complex literary device, and you know, in each character who's involved, there is someone who was originally present, someone who heard it from them, and then that person is relating it to Glaucon, and it said that they've related it shortly before, so the rumors are flying. But, you know, one thing I think that's significant is that um, Apollodorus, who's, who's uh, telling the story, 
of the whole symposium. He seems to be someone who really uh, uh, came to be gripped by a desire to emulate Socrates and was powerfully aware of his inadequacy, that he could never be like Socrates, uh, and was kind of just broken up about that and, and, uh, and kind of ruined in a way or corrupted by Socrates because of his admiration for him, desire to emulate him and his, his, his inability to do so. And when you take that and you juxtapose that with the story about Alcibiades and Socrates and what happened between them and the whole question and Socrates' own speech about philosophy and love in the symposium in which he seems to indicate that our, our erotic desires, and that's eros in a very broad sense, not just romantic, but our desire for the beautiful, the noble, and the eternal, points to philosophy in the end. We realize this is what Socrates kind of entranced these young men with. And where did it lead them? Where did it lead Alcibiades? Where did it lead Apollodorus? Where did it lead Glaucon? There's this kind of, you know, we get this picture of this influence that Socrates had with these somewhat questionable results. And I think all of that is, is part of this, uh, you know, what we get out of the details. One has to go through quite carefully and, and, uh, and, and look at the details of the text, but I think uh, all of that's there in that, in that literary frame. So the symposium uh, is the name of also a Athenian custom of drinking yourself silly after dinner. <laughs> Um, right. Um, but in this case, it's still like a, it's like a frat party, but the, everyone's older and has more money. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> in this case, they agree not to drink too much. They can give speeches. They give speeches on love. Uh, various people do so. Agathon, uh, Aristophanes famously, uh, and then Socrates. And then at the end, there's an interruption. Yeah. Uh, and Alcibiades comes in with a group of Real frat boys, his followers. Yeah, yeah I was going to say it becomes much more like a frat party. Frat party. It's pretty sophisticated. I mean, despite it's the fact that they even, they even agree to limit their to moderate yes. their drinking, so it's a it's not doing them quite no. the service they deserve to stay with the frat. But when Alcibiades comes in, things take a turn toward the uh, animal health a little bit. Yeah, a little bit more. And yeah. he, he he brings the party with him, which is yeah. I think significant. He's probably like yeah. a and there's always a party going on around Alcibiades. Exactly. Um, and of course, this is—I I don't know if it, it, this is one of the most easily. This is certainly the most datable of the dialogues, and maybe mm -hmm. one of the best, most datable of anything in ancient literature, um, because Plato carefully sets it months, weeks before the Sicilian expedition takes off, and before there's the uh, sacrilege of the destruction of the Herms around Athens, which for which Alcibiades was um, blamed. Um, what? Do you make then of the speech that Alcibiades gives in a sort of state of half drunkenness? Mm. Well, um, I think that, uh, you know, the fact that we can, I will say this Plato does, uh, in, in a number of cases, give us um, uh, very, very clear kind of timestamps of the setting of his dialogue. Plato's Carmides, for example, it, it said that Socrates has just returned from the. Uh, from, from campaign. Um, oh, right. So we know so that's, there, right, that's there, right after Delium, probably. Uh, yes. And, or, or was it, yeah, Delium, yeah. And, uh, and so that, that's something that Plato does. You know, it, not in every dialogue. In some dialogues, it seems that he's trying to tell us, I want you to understand it's at this point in Socrates' career, or it's at this point with respect to this other dialogue I've also written. So, um, but, but the symposium, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, and there's a lot of uh, uh, innuendo also kind of surrounding, mm -hmm. surrounding, 
um, this crime for which it was really the, you know, Alcibiades, the, 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 the place where things really took a turn um, for Alcibiades' relationship with Athens, Athens was uh, when he was accused of um, being, first of all, being responsible for a night of vandalism uh, and sacrilege in Athens that was really just before the Sicilian expedition was to set sail in which the uh, the statues of Hermes that were very common around the city uh, were all, um, uh, well, vandalized, let's say. Um, well, I mean, let's, let's be, let's be. They were depicted that these Herms that they were called statues of Hermes were, had erect penises and the penises were bashed off. Which and, is, uh, I mean, talk about a frat party thing to do. I mean, that's exactly. <laughs> I mean, if, if if they if they were Herms around Charlottesville, there'd be no one would be no one would still have a penis. Not not one they, of them. That's <laughs> right. And and uh, and but the Athenians, being as pious as they were, which you know one could talk about the complexity of Athenian piety in this in this uh, age, but uh, they were still very pious, and and um, and this was seen as a terrible omen for the Sicilian expedition. Alcibiades was, was uh, blamed for that. He was also blamed for profaning the Eleusinian mysteries uh, by holding a mock initiation ritual in his house with his friends. And, um, and so were these crimes of impiety that Alcibiades was, was, uh, was uh, charged with, never brought to trial because he fled. But, um, but the symposium is full of innuendo about that. I mean, there is this drunken party that seems to spill out into the night after all mm-hmm. said and done. And some of the characters who were uh, jointly accused with Alcibiades of these things are present at the party. And yeah. so, you know, it's kind of, well, was this the night when it mm-hmm. took place? And more, more, more than that, there, is, uh, there are several, especially in Socrates' speech and Alcibiades' speech, there are several references to, to uh, mystery rites. At one point, um, uh, um, Alcibiades says, anyone who is not initiated in the mystery, block your ears so that you don't hear. A very sloppy <laughs> way of trying to protect uh, secret mystery. Now, in this case, it's a kind of drunken joke, um, but it's obviously a reference. And yeah. so, yeah, it's full of innuendo about this. And, and, it's such and a, so, I mean, it's, it's retor- it is such a complex when you realize all this stuff, you realize yeah. this, the, the game oh, that Plato's playing. It's, it's, it's not endless. just philosophically complex, but I mean, it's endlessly complex. It's, he's, he's, a, he's a poet. It's, it's, a, it's you know, the symposium. Some of the dialogues are, shall we say, drier. The symposium has quite yeah. a bit of has quite a bit of uh, bounce in it dramatically, and it, and, it would be uh, a good play. It, it would be a good play. Uh, you know, it, 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 it doesn't have that much. I mean, it's not like like uh, Sophocles, but but you know, it's it's. Uh, it's, it is. It is. Once you see Plato's artistry, his his uh, his dramatic kind of uh, ability, he's a poet. It really is amazing, and it's the kind of thing you can come back to uh, and read over and over for, for decades. And there's always something to find. So, so with all of this innuendo, I think one thing we recognize is Socrates' speech is this speech about uh, philosophy being the true um, uh, path to the satisfaction of all our most powerful desires, which, as I was saying before, seems to have been the lure that he held out to Alcibiades to bring him, to kind of pry him away from his political ambition and move him towards a critical examination of his desires. 
and his political ambition. And here Socrates seems to be putting on full display his ability to present that image of philosophy. But when Alcibiades comes in, there is this drunkenly interrupting the party. And as Socrates um, makes clear, and it's also there's a really interesting passage in the Republic where it's kind of put this way, taking the series of speeches away from their kind of abstract uh, 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 dedication to the theme of love in general and focusing his own speech on the specific character of Socrates. So away from a general theme and onto a eulogy of a, of a or a kind of a tribute, a strange sort of tribute that's mixed with accusations of a man, of Socrates himself, we have a, a juxtaposition and a contrast of the way Socrates presents philosophy and then the way Alcibiades experienced that presentation of philosophy by Socrates and, and what it did to him. Um, and I think you could say it, it messed him up. Uh, it, he, he has never recovered. He says there are days that I just wish Socrates were gone from the earth mm -hmm. so that I wouldn't have to have his kind of voice and his face in my mind looming over me, judging me, making me realize I judge myself that when I go for the, when I go and pursue the applause of the assembly of the demos, I'm pursuing the applause of the unwise, the imprudent, the unphilosophic, those who have not, like Socrates, examined their desires, and that I really should be seeking Socrates' love and approval and not the love and approval of, of the unwise many, and yet I can't pry myself away from it. So we see in Socrates' speech what it is that he presents, to how it is that he makes himself, Socrates, by the way, Famously ugly, short, paunchy, bald, bug-eyed, snub-nosed, um, and yet came to be the object of Alcibiades' affection that rivaled, uh, you know, the kind of glory of of, um, of Athenian uh, fame and prominence. And so, what he shows in his speech, what it is that he held out to someone like Alcibiades, and Alcibiades shows what it was like to be uh, enthralled by that, and then have to live a life kind of fighting between what were now kind of split desires. Now, my sense is, is that certainly the most, most commentary discusses Alcibiades' fa failure as a student, um, the failure mm -hmm. of his, his love of the philosopher, his erotic love for the philosopher, rather yeah. than what, what Socrates wants, his erotic love of philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, but as I was considering this again, um, I was wondering uh, what we could say about how Socrates has failed as a teacher. Um, yeah. Or has he? Or is it? Or is Plato just t telling us that good teaching is dangerous, that it has dangerous effects, which are which I would agree with, and it's because they're unpredictable. Like yeah. I, I've just been looking at my, my LinkedIn, uh, and I've got all these students from four years ago who were first years, and they just graduated, and they're emailing, they're, they're messaging me on LinkedIn, telling me things I said to them or said in class four years mm. ago, which of course I have no memory of. Mm. I might have just been making a passing comment to them during office hours, and apparently it was very influential. And it's really yeah. uh, humble. It's it's actually it it's not it doesn't help my ego much. It's actually kind of terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You were listening to me, you idiot. And what have <laughs> I done? <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. No. I. I look, the 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 good teach that good teaching is. Uh, is dangerous. I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, and, you know, I think that um, although it's true um, 
commentary does tend to to focus on, you know, how is it that, that Alcibiades, that what made Alcibiades a failed Socratic student? And that's a good question and a fair question, maybe in, in, a, in, a, in a simple, straightforward way, the right question. On yeah. the other hand, there have there have been several also who have, who have seen that um, Plato's presentation of Socrates does not altogether exonerate him, that Plato was willing to show that the corruption charge against Socrates, it wasn't totally baseless or groundless, you know, that, that Socrates, I think, I think you can't read these dialogues and, 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 and deny that Socrates had some influence over Alcibiades that wasn't altogether um, salutary. And, and, um, and that what it, and that it, but that it did have to do precisely with an education half achieved, that it was Alcibiades coming to be more critical somehow of his, Native desires and ambitions, the desire to help the Athenians, and the desire to, uh, you know, win their honor. Um, but then, having seen that, not being able to see it all the way through, to really kind of purify his thought by pursuing the Socratic line of questioning down to the end, and instead arriving at a place where he couldn't. He couldn't unsee, for example, the criticism of Athenian democracy that, that, that Socrates had shown him, that in some ways the assembly, the demos, was not as worthy of Alcibiades' devotion as he made them out to be. <laughs> but if you can't pry yourself away from them, if you're still chasing them and, and seeking their approval while simultaneously haunted by that thought that but are they really worthy of me? It creates a, a very complicated uh, personality. And I think we see that, you know, when Thucydides, the historian, of course, uh, uh, who, who preserved for us the, so many details of the, uh, and so artfully of the, of the Peloponnesian War between Athens and Sparta, when he presents Alcibiades, I think we see this. There's mm -hmm. this tremendous arrogance contempt. in Alcibiades. Well, there's also contempt for the people and who love and him, exactly. which is and the his, most poisonous thing of all. I mean, he needs, exactly. their, he needs their love, and yet he right. is contemptuous of them. Right, exactly. And he, so he kind of comes to them saying, look, you just need to do what I tell you. I'm the one who's worthy of leading you. So put me in charge and let me, but you got to hit your wagon to my star here because I'm Alcibiades, for goodness sake. Uh, you know, <laughs> if, if, you want, if you want to get anywhere, you got you to gotta go with me. So it's this, yeah. It, and now it's a real question. So how much of that is, Alcibiades in his nature, how much of that is what Socrates did to it. But, you know, that, that, to, to draw that line, you know, with perfect precision, maybe that's not possible. But I think Plato invites us to think about where it might be drawn and to think about um, this question of, uh, well, you know, to what extent was Socrates guilty, Socrates guilty of, the, of the charge of corrupting the youth? And, and what exactly did it mean? What, was, what did that corruption consist in? And, and how was it a kind of half success? How is the greatest failure of Socrates a kind of half success where he shows someone something about themselves that is a step in the direction of a genuine philosophic education, but that getting halfway there is maybe the worst, worst of all worlds? So let's. Um, so one thing that's clear to me now from reading your book is that political ambition is inextricably connected to love. Mm. Um, and this should not be surprising. Um, I think probably my favorite um, saying is... Uh, the very Neoplatonic Augustine saying, uh, tell me what you love and I will tell you what you are, who you are. Mm -hmm. And um, 
for the politically ambitious, it's a question of what they love. Mm. And uh, we've seen that, I mean, the symposium is about love. <laughs> and uh, But so was, so was first yeah. and second Alcibiades uh, in their way. I mean, after yeah, all, on, on prayer, it's about love and the gods. Yeah. Uh, it's the ultimate about uh, ultimate directions of love. Um, so, uh, what are some of the loves you, you discuss? Some of the loves are involved in uh, political ambition: the love of renown, the love of power, the love of honor, um, and the loved the love of justice. The love, which I think mm -hmm. I would take as as the uh, the in a Platonic way would be the love to see that the right thing is distributed to the right person. Mm -hmm. Not equality of justice or equality of outcome, but the appropriate. Yes. Things have to be appropriate. What's the word? Uh, I guess that's sofrasune? I know. But anyway. Um, well, that's moderation. Yeah. Moderation, yeah. Um, so uh, could you <laughs> I just I just unleashed it. it. That's a lot of stuff I just left. But could you talk about some of the loves are involved in this in political ambition and and why and, and, and why there's and why we still see them, why they're still important? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, you know, I think that one interesting thing is to begin by asking the question, how, what was even the word the Greeks would have uh, used to, for, for ambition? I mean, they didn't have, you know, the, 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 uh, the English ambition comes from Latin. It's, it's, it's uh, related to uh, amble or ambulatory. It means to walk around and literally with a kind of walking around canvassing for votes. Uh, so, 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 so that's that's the English word. The Greek word is has, has does not have that uh, etymological kind of um, uh, origin. Uh, the, the, the closest, and, and so there is no actual exact parallel. But the, the thing that most commonly gets translated into ambition from Greek is philotimia, love of honor, and that's probably it, it's, it's probably the best place to start and maybe end. Um, that because this is something I think that. Um, you know, it's one of these things that we don't necessarily speak in these terms, the love of honor, but it's a way in which uh, Greek philosophy can offer us something, namely by, um, you know, getting us to think in categories that are perhaps a little bit uh, foreign to us at first. But the more we think about them, the more we realize it's a really valuable category to have at our disposal. The love of honor, the desire to be affirmed somehow. I mean, what is it that we're seeking in honor? There is a certain kind of just Russian intoxication of receiving honor, especially from those we respect or this desire for honor from people from whom we're seeking it. But, you know, why exactly? Um, is it because we think that our goodness is somehow confirmed when we receive honor? Um, uh, or uh, is, it, is it the indication of our being loved? Is it, a, is, is, it, is it the being loved that we want? Um, I think it's an extremely powerful uh, drive that continues to move human affairs, you know, both in the large scale and maybe even more just in our individual lives. That is a big part of, of uh, political ambition. Um, but the thing about the love of honor is that it points simultaneously in two directions, as I was saying at the very beginning. On one hand, the love of honor is love of honor for ourselves. We want this good. We want to obtain it selfishly. But on the other hand, it seems to point to the need to obtain it through honorable service. We need to do honorable things to get it. And I think a big kind of bifurcation in political ambition comes from, does a person pursue their love of honor 
as an end in itself, or the honor as an end in itself, where the end justifies the means. And if you can obtain the honor, then it doesn't really matter how you got it. Uh, or does it remain moored to the desire to benefit the people and receive the honor in return for that genuine benefaction? Um, so there's the love of honor points us both to a kind of desire for, for renown, maybe eternal glory, a way to, as Socrates puts it in the symposium, after all, to transcend our mortality by, you know, having our statues of ourselves erected in bronze and marble and so on. Um, or uh, it, it, it has that in it, but it also has this desire, as you say, uh, to be the source of justice to uh, uh, solve the problems we see around us and to have the honor given to us in exchange for the great good we do for our community. And all of that's mixed up in political ambition and it's what makes it so powerful and so volatile um, and so important for us to think about. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I can't resist saying this, my one reference to the 2020 election, um, it's fascinating in terms of uh, the desire to be loved, uh, yeah. because uh, we've got two people very different. I think their mm -hmm. partisans will agree, but mm -hmm. I see them, they, they are both very expressive desire to be loved uh, by those. It's very strange. I mean, Donald Trump in 2016 was asked, what's the convention going to be about? Uh, and he said, it's going to show that I'm very well liked, which is a very strange mm -hmm. thing to say. But mm -hmm. one of his uh, one of his uh, abilities is to say things that we all think but wouldn't dare say out loud. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, Joe Biden's very much like that, too. I grew up across the river, the bay from Delaware. It's a very mm -hmm. small state. Mm -hmm. um, he is known to people in Delaware in the way that other people know their mayor. Mm -hmm. um, and he is that gregarious, uh, backslapping personality is what's, well, actually, it's something that lends itself very easily to the politics of a small state, mm -hmm. um, because uh, he must know a lot of Delawareans. <laughs> I mean, personally, it's not hard. Um, it's, no, it really isn't. Um, it's a, it's my, my wife likes to say that Delaware is just the, still the right size to be a polis. Um, yeah. And uh, and there is uh, that person who is, likes to talk to everybody on Amtrak when he commutes. Right. Um, that's also there's also there's also a keen desire uh, to be liked. And I I know uh, yeah. from firsthand reports that when he would encounter someone at a town meeting, because you can go to all the towns in Delaware and have town meetings, even when you're a senator. Yeah. Um, and he found someone who didn't like him. This was like a personal insult. Yeah. And he would spend like 15, 20 minutes trying to get them to like him. Mm -hmm. um, that's very fascinating. Now, as I say, Delaware lends itself to that. Yeah. But, but in, in these both cases, we see this a desire for a certain type, probably the, the, the most obvious type of, of honor. Yeah. Of, and of you love. know, yeah, I think you're right. And I think it's a step in a helpful direction to, um, to recognize that, uh, you know, the, the, what is driving the politically ambitious are the same things that drive us all. Yes. You know? I yes. mean, when you, when you speak about the desire to be loved, who doesn't know exactly something of that, you know, and 
different people have it in different proportion with other desires. And so political ambition is not so much something that some people have that others don't, so much as a, a kind of certain concept, a certain way of arranging the desire, a certain arrangement and a certain proportion, as I say, of the desires that are just a part of human nature generally, I think. Mm -hmm. And um and 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 to be able to see that I think is to is to be able to get some leverage. You know, it's so easy to um uh, to um, to to idolize uh, the political figures we love and to demonize the ones we don't, and there's something helpful in kind of recognizing, you know, in some ways they're driven by the same things, and that uh, it's it's not selflessness, it's not pure altruism that distinguishes the good and pure selfishness that distinguishes the evil. If we if if that's what we're seeking. We're we're going to miss the important things because that's that's too simplistic. Mm -hmm. Even the even the most villainous believe that they are, uh, that, yeah, and that they're benefiting their yep. communities. And and even the most uh, noble are uh, you know are are, are seeking uh, are are seeking something for themselves. Uh, are seeking satisfaction for themselves in their lives in the grandest possible way. Um, it's always a combination, and to and, and 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 to have that in mind is to be in a position to be to be able to draw more carefully the line between political ambition that has gone in a dangerous direction and political ambition that has the potential to to really uh, to do great good. And uh, and I think it's important to remember we need healthy political ambition. Uh, if we're going to be guided in a healthy direction, uh, political ambition is not to be, I think, not to be viewed as something, uh, as a pejorative term um, uh, as such. Uh, it's something we need. It's something every political community needs. And the question is, how do we foster it in the healthiest possible way? Now, I just want to conclude with this. Um, one of Madison's uh, most, or I should say Publius's most famous comments in <laughs> The Federalist is that ambition must be made to counter ambition. Mm -hmm. um, this is a deeply suspicious um, view of political ambition, yeah. uh, but also one that believes that it will always be there. And one of the most, another interesting feature of our politics, I think we'll see now that it goes back some 50 years, certainly in the last 30 years, is that the what Publius thought there would be intense ambition in the various branches of government to mm -hmm. fight with one another and counter each other and mm -hmm. to hammer things out. That ambition is curiously disappearing. Um, you have a much more supine legislative branch mm -hmm. than I think Publius uh, and in both of its bodies, um, mm -hmm. much more supine than Publius would have thought possible. Yep. Um, what? How can you're suggesting that we renew political ambition? Um, is that um, is it possible uh, for those who wish to be the? I mean, this is the, this is the fundamental to, to my mind one of the fundamental question of political philosophy that Plato's challenging with us us mm -hmm. with. Is it possible for those who wish to be the best human beings to also work for the best of their city? Oh. Certainly. I know. I, I think it's certainly possible. Um, and uh, but, you know, I think something that is not so much the 
point of the Alcibiades dialogue, so Plato speaks of it, perhaps more elsewhere, is that and that requires a certain, I think, um, cultural atmosphere, you know. Uh, um, and I think we're not without the resources to to, uh, to 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 continue to create or to create in a fuller way that atmosphere. I think there is a lot of um, you know, youth tends naturally to breed a kind of uh, hopeful ambition, a positive ambition, uh, a desire to do, you know, to do good, to 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 achieve greatness, um, and to achieve it for for doing good. And um, I think one thing that we have to deal with is our cynicism. Mm-hmm. That uh, you know, we we kind of we grind that out of young people, and um, and, uh, and you know by just kind of constantly saying, oh yeah, politics is such an ugly game, and everyone's out for themselves, and there is no altruism, and nobody really makes change, and so on. Um, but uh, you know, to to I think it's 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 certainly possible. We have certain we have a kind of um, A bit of an uphill climb culturally to learn how to educate our young to um, uh, continue to nourish that uh, optimistic hope that um, they can be good citizens and good leaders and achieve uh, a kind of gratification that way and and uh, and a satisfaction of their desires that way that really goes hand in hand with improving their communities and our shared communities. Um, um, but, 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 you know, it, it goes back to Madison, I think, but, uh, our, this, this, uh, country and, but not just this country, the philosophy on which, uh, from, from which the, uh, the American founders were drawing was one that had this view of human nature in which it's fundamentally individualistic and selfish, you know, it comes from, uh, from, from Hobbes and, and from Locke and this. Um, you know, this view that politics emerges from a nasty, brutal state of nature as a way of protecting ourselves from one another because none of us can ever be trusted. And um, ancient philosophy, I think, gives us a, something of a helpful balance to that and getting us to not be so quick to dismiss our altruistic desires, asking us to think about them more carefully and ask what there really is to them. Where do they really come from and what are we really seeking in them? And and uh, I think it can teach us something about what it is that a healthy political community needs that it's very possible those enlightenment thinkers from which um, our own origins spring were, were not sufficiently attentive to. My guest today has been Ariel Helfer. He's author of Socrates and Alcibiades, Plato's Drama of Political Philosophy and Ambition. Ariel, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Ronat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.